Well, let's go ahead and bow our heads for a word of prayer as we dive into our message. Father in heaven, we are bowing not just our our heads, but also our hearts before you, Lord. Because, Father, we recognize, we humbly come before you when we recognize that our righteousness is like filthy rags. Father, we can bring nothing to the table to say, here, God, here, this is my offering, love me more. And simply, Father, we come to the table on the merits of Jesus Christ, your Son. That's all we have, Father. But thank you that we can come boldly before the throne of grace, as Hebrews tells us, because Jesus, our great high priest, has passed through the heavens. Father, we've all come to church today with different experiences. We've had trials this week. But I'm so thankful, Father, that we can come, we can worship you, we can forget what lies behind and reach forward to what lies ahead. So we invite you to be with us now. Enlighten our minds as we study your word. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen and amen. The story goes of a young boy. And the young boy was walking along the the beach, and you probably have heard this story before, uh, when he noticed uh, uh, some starfish that were there on the shore. In fact, there, there were hundreds of them. The surf had washed up these starfish onto shore, and this young boy had got it in his head, I need to help these starfish. These thousands of starfish that were there washed up on shore, and, and one by one he's throwing them along, and, and pretty soon a, an older gentleman walks along the beach, and he notices the boy picking up something and gently throwing it in the ocean, and, and he asks, what are you doing? And the youth replied, I'm throwing starfish back into the ocean. The surf is up. The tide is going out. If I don't throw them back, they will die. So the man said, or son the man said, don't you realize that there are miles and miles of beach and thousands of starfish? You can't make a difference, the man said. After listening politely, the boy bent down, picked up a starfish, and threw it back into the surf, and smiling at the man, politely said, I made a difference for that one. Friends, you and I are going to receive opposition when we share the gospel. There are going to be people that come up and say, you can't make a difference. What are you doing? And I believe, friends, that though we may not preach to thousands, though we may not build churches for hundreds, we can make a difference in the life of one. And I believe that God is calling us in this season at Hendersonville with this Bible Prophecy Seminar coming up to strategically and prayerfully think about how can we make a difference for just one. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ezekiel, our scripture passage today. And perhaps as you read the major and minor prophets, you get the same feeling that I do that these prophets didn't have it easy. These prophets were given difficult tasks to share God's words with people that didn't want to hear it. As you read the stories of Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel, you realize that is not a job that I would want to have. And yet God gave them courage and strength to share his words. So Ezekiel chapter 3, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 3 at the outset. 
And notice here what we're told. Moreover, he said to me, that's God speaking to Ezekiel. Moreover, God said to Ezekiel, son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. So often God would, so God often would give Ezekiel challenges. He would give him things to do to illustrate different issues that Israel was struggling with. And I appreciate this as a youth pastor and as, especially as a parent. I, I realize that my kids need stories. They need illustrations. They need to see something tangibly. And God did that with Israel. Ezekiel would often do tangible things that people could see and, and, and understand and, and feel and, and listen to uh, so they could understand better. So he has in this, this vision that Ezekiel has, he says, eat this scroll. And go speak to the house of Israel. Verse 2, so I opened my mouth and he caused me to eat the scroll. Verse 3, he said to me, son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with this scroll that I gave you. It's kind of an interesting request. Son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I ate and it was in my mouth like what? Honey in sweetness. Ezekiel eats this scroll and it is in fact very sweet. Now this scroll represents God's words. And friends, do you agree that God's words are sweet? Aren't they, friends? Let's go to Psalms 19, verse 10. After David talks about the law of God, after he talks about the words of God, the commandments of God, the, the judgments of the Lord, he says in verse 10, and I'm sure you're thinking of the song, more to be desired they than gold, more to be desired they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and what? The honeycomb. More to be desired are God's words than gold. There's something precious about gold, right? There's people that have spent their entire lives searching for gold. We, of course, know of the famous gold rush uh, many years ago, but even today, you can uh, look on YouTube, and there's people that are devoting their lives to finding gold because they recognize the preciousness of that metal. But more to be desired than gold, the psalmist says, is God's word. Not just regular gold, but yea, than much fine gold. And as the psalmist is singing this psalm or writing down these words, even sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. I'm sure how often David, out in the wilderness watching his sheep, fighting off bears and lions, had come across some sweet honeycomb from the bee. He had tasted honey, and as he thinks of how sweet a honey was, more to be desired than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter than honey, are the words of God. Psalms 119-103 very, very similar language that we just read in Psalm 19. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. How many of you have a sweet tooth? Anyone willing to admit it? Oh, there's some hands. You know, uh, uh, sugar is a, a addicting on purpose, isn't it? Uh, uh, and, and, and we know that sweet taste in our mouth. And here the psalmist says, sweet Lord, how sweet are your words to my taste. I want more and more and more of it. It's a lot better to be addicted to God's word than it is to sugar. Amen? How sweet are your words to my taste. Let's go to Jeremiah 15, 16. The Bible says, your words were found and I ate them. 
So here are the prophet having a, 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 a similar experience that God is wanting to illustrate to Ezekiel that when you eat God's words, when you delight in his word, when you read his words, there is joy then. Your words were found and I ate them. I read them. I meditated on them. And your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Friends, is the word of God the joy and rejoicing of your heart? God's word can be very relevant to our lives. I had a youth at my church back in California at the Fallbrook Church, and her name was Sierra. And Sierra had an English teacher named Mr. Fowler. And Mr. Fowler was frustrating to her because she was a straight-A student. She got good grades. She actually just finished up med school at Loma Linda recently. At the time, she was in high school going to a public school, and Mr. Fowler uh, didn't have clear expectations. People didn't know what to turn in, and, and you know, he wasn't afraid to give bad grades, and it was a, a, a tough class, and she would come home and vent to her mom, and one day her mom said, I want you to go upstairs and read your Bible. You know, her mom's just kind of trying to get Sarah off her back. Go up and read your Bible. So Sarah goes up and turns to, and I invite you to turn with me there to Psalm 91, and she, she's reading through her Bible, and she opens up to Psalm 91, and as she's thinking about her English teacher, Mr. Fowler, her eyes land on Psalm 91, verse 3, which says, Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler. Can someone say amen? <laughs> Sierra, this young high school student, opens up the Bible as she's struggling with Mr. Fowler, saying, God, I struggle with this teacher. I struggle with Mr. Fowler. And God tells her, I will deliver you from the snare of the fowler. And God's word became sweet to Sierra. She recognized that the Bible was not just something we read at church. The Bible is not just something that other people can read and study. It's not just for theology students or pastors, but the Bible is for me. As a teenager, the Bible is for me. I can read the Bible, and his words can be sweet to my heart and my mind. And I believe that Ezekiel is having this experience. Jeremiah is having this experience. You can turn back with me. But here God tells Ezekiel to eat this scroll. And it was sweet in his mouth because God's words are sweet. And I believe, friends, that God wants us to have that experience on a daily basis with his word. To read his word and his word will become sweet to each of us. Let's go to Revelation chapter 10. Here in Revelation, we find that the prophet John has a very similar experience as Ezekiel. Revelation, last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 10 and verse 8. The Bible says, Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go take the little book, which is in the hand of the angel who sits on the sea and on the earth. So I went to the angel and said to him, Give me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat it and... And let's read the second part next. It will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Is that the same experience that Ezekiel had? Same thing. Same thing that Jeremiah had. God's word was sweet to him, but unfortunately, what was the ex next experience? It made his stomach bitter. Verse 10, I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach had become bitter, and God said, you must prophesy again. As Seventh-day Adventist. This passage, I believe, speaks very clearly to our experience when Jesus 
said he was, or they, they, I didn't say Jesus said, but they said Jesus is going to come back. They started preaching. Jesus is coming back. They studied Daniel chapter 8, Daniel 8, 14, and, and, and read about how in 1844 something exciting was going to happen. But ultimately, Jesus physically didn't return to earth, but he went into the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary. And so their sweet experience, Jesus is coming back, yes, became bitter, but Jesus said, keep on preaching. And I believe, friends, that the experience that John had, the experience that Ezekiel had, is the experience that we have today. That when we feed on God's word, it is sweet to us. And we can have a beautiful experience reading God's word in the morning. Oh, Lord, you showed me this and this, and yes, God, and we're feeling so good. And suddenly we go out into the world and we try to live Christianity and it's hard. We go out into the world and we try to share our faith and, and, and suddenly our courage is zapped and we say, what happened from a few minutes ago to right now? How, how can I go from having this sweet experience with Jesus and then suddenly having this strong temptation to you know, speak harshly with, with my kids or, or how can we flip-flop back and forth. Why, Lord, is it so hard? Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 7. O Lord, you induced me, and I was persuaded to speak. I was persuaded. I had to speak. Your, your word was inside of, 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 of my mind and heart. It was a fire inside of me. You are stronger than I. You have prevailed. When God tells you to speak, you speak. But then notice what Jeremiah says. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocks me. It is difficult, friends, to share God's words. It is not easy. You try going out there and getting up on a pulpit and start preaching out in a crowd. It's not easy, especially in today's world. I had a, a, a professor at Southern. He's still there. Some of you are familiar with the name Dr. Alan Parker. And Dr. Parker told us in class one day that he and his friends, while he was living in South Africa, had an idea. They said, you know what, we need to gather a crowd so we can share the gospel. And so they went to the beach and they had purchased a little fake shark fin that you could put on your back. And so the friend uh, says, all right, I'm gonna go out into the water and pretend to be a shark and that'll get people to come up on the shore and then you stand on the chair and you preach. And so they thought it was a great idea. And so the friend, uh, uh, you know, goes out in the water, and, and maybe Dr. Parker, I think, if I remember the story, he was the first one that started yelling, shark, shark, and everyone starts running up on shore, and now Dr. Parker had his crowd, and he gets his chair, and he starts preaching. But do you think it went very well? No. People were mad. What, what are you doing? And finally, when people realized he was the one that had done it, they were even more mad. And, and uh, I, I don't recall all the details of the story, but I just remember him saying that that was a bad idea, right? It might not be the best uh, way to share the gospel. But it's a good uh, reminder that it is tough to be a Christian in today's world. It is hard to stand for the right though the heavens fall. In, in, in our day and age where all of these different agendas are getting pushed in our kids and, and our families, it is tough to speak up for God. We can be guaranteed that we're going to be just like Jeremiah. We're going to be mocked as Christians, you believe that a God actually literally created the world in seven days? You believe that? That's crazy, they'll say. You believe that, that marriage is only designed to be between a man and, and a woman? You're a hater. 
They will mock you for your beliefs just like they did Jeremiah and Ezekiel. But I believe, friends, that what God is going to show us today is that he will strengthen us to share what he wants us to share. We don't have to do it on our own. Let's go to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 6, just beforehand. Same passage, but just a few verses beforehand. Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 6. God tells Ezekiel, You son of man, do not be afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Friends, we don't have to be afraid of the opposition. We don't have to be afraid of what people will say. We don't have to be afraid of our friends making fun of us for being a Sabbath keeper or a Christian. Do not be afraid of them, nor be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you, and you dwell among scorpions, don't be afraid of their words, nor be dismayed by their looks, although they are a rebellious house. When, that, when I read that, that spoke to my heart. Because it is easy for me as Someone that, you know, I, I, my personality is I'm a people pleaser, right? I, I want to uh, make someone happy. So if, I, if I'm speaking to someone and they instantly look at me like, what in the world are you doing, right? It's a temptation to start changing what I'm, what I'm saying. Here, God is telling Ezekiel, don't be dismayed by their looks. I don't care what's on their face. I don't care what they're saying. You cannot, or you don't have to be afraid. You can keep on speaking. So now look at chapter 3, verse 7. But the house of Israel will not listen to you because they will not listen to me. Isn't that insightful? That when you are sharing God's word, when you are giving that flyer to somebody and saying, hey, I want you to have this, and they're rejecting you or they're getting upset at you, don't take it personally. Right? This is between them and God. Our job is to share the message. For all of the house of Israel are impudent and hard-hearted. We resonate with those words as we think about today's message. Let's go to Zechariah chapter 7, verse 12. We'll start in verse 11. Here's Zechariah, one of the minor prophets. He understands what Ezekiel is going through. He understands what Jeremiah is going through. He understands what we're facing today. But they refused to heed, shrugged their shoulders, and stopped their ears so they could not hear. Yes, verse 12, they made their hearts like flint refusing to hear the law and words which the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Wow, their hearts were like flint. Now is flint a soft or hard stone? It's a hard stone. How many of you ever found an arrowhead before? All right, they used to make tools out of flint. How many of you ever taken flint on a backpacking trip, strike it against something and try to create some sparks? Flint is a very hard rock. And here, God is telling Zechariah that his people had made their hearts like flint. They were hard. And friends, as we think about this message, we're not just talking about the people out there, but we're also talking about the people in here. We're thinking about our own hearts. How many times has my heart been so hard like flint, and God is trying to reach me, and I keep on having a hard heart. And God wants to soften our hearts today. And I believe that he's going to soften not just our hearts, but the hearts of people around him as well. From Testimonies for the Church, I love this quote. God understands all our weaknesses. He can pity and love even when the hearts of men are as hard as flint. Isn't that beautiful, friends? As I was studying this passage about, man, Lord, how can my heart not be hard as flint? And, and Lord, other people around me, their, their hearts are, are hard 
Uh, how, can, how can we speak truth to them? How can we love them when their hearts are so hard? And God showed me this quote that God can pity and love even when our hearts and men's heart are as hard as flint. And I believe that's important to remember, friends, because as we are sharing God's word and we receive opposition, God can plant love in our hearts for every single person, no matter who they are, no matter what they look like. Let's go back to Jeremiah. Jeremiah, let's go back to Jeremiah, chapter one. I believe, friends, that God is going to give us strength. Even though men's hearts are hard around us, he's going to give us strength to share his word. Verse 17, therefore prepare yourself, chapter one, verse 17, and arise, speak to them all that I command you. Do not be dismayed before their faces, lest I dismay you before them. For behold, I have made you this day a fortified city, an iron pillar, and bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings of Judah and its princes and its priests, and against the people of the land. Verse 19, they will fight against you, but they shall not prevail against you, for I am with you, says the Lord, to deliver you. I believe, friends, in the midst of a difficult and challenging environment to share the gospel, in the midst of hard hearts, God is going to give us strength to continue moving forward. Whatever obstacle, whatever iron gate we may come across, God is going to give us strength to push against that iron gate. Go to uh, Ezekiel chapter 3, and let's look at the rest of our scripture reading. Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. Behold, I have made your face strong against their faces. If you thought their faces or their hearts were hard, God can make you hard in a good way against them. And your forehead strong against their forehead. No matter what arrows may be flying at you, they can bounce off. Like adamant stone, harder than flint, I have made your forehead. And I thought that was interesting as I read this. Here in Zechariah, God says, man, Israel's hearts are hard like flint. They are so hard. They're as hard as flint. But here he's telling Ezekiel, I'm going to make your forehead as hard as flint against theirs. Why? Because we don't have to be afraid of them nor to be dismayed at their looks, though they are a rebellious house. But I want to share a, a story here as we continue. I read in a, a new book that Don McClafferty Put out called God Still Lives, and he shares stories from his experience, and this story is called The Iron Gate. And essentially, uh, Don McClafferty and his wife had gone to live up uh, in a small mountain town, and they lived far from the church. They lived, you know, 30, 40 miles from the church, and God had led them specifically to that house, and they wondered why. God, why are we so far from church? We're going in every day. We're driving all this distance, um, but after being there for a few months, they found out that at the end of the gravel road that they lived in or lived on, there was a former church member that hadn't been to church in 40 years. And he had a big iron gate across his driveway, and nobody ever saw him. Rarely did they see, A few people had, had met him, uh, but rarely did they see this neighbor. He was very private. And Don immediately said, Lord, I believe you brought us here for this man. And he started praying for uh, he called it the Iron Gate Neighbor over and over and over again. And he would go on these prayer walks and, and he started praying for him. 
And very soon after, within a couple of days after praying for this man, God gave Don an opportunity to meet him. He was walking near his gate, and their other neighbor had, uh, was there at the fence talking to the Iron Gate neighbor. Tom was his name. So they, uh, 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 this neighbor was pr- talking with Tom, and Don was there, and the neighbor said, hey, hey, come meet, come meet Tom. You know, this is Don, Don, Tom. And so they're talking to each other, and God did something interesting for Don McClafferty. As he's walking up to meet Tom for the very first time, the Holy Spirit speaks to Don's heart to ask this new Iron Gate neighbor, Tom, a question that was very uncomfortable. The question that the Holy Spirit told Don McClafferty to ask Tom was, very first time he's ever met him before, very first question, are you ready for Jesus to come, Tom? First question, can you imagine going up to somebody, and that's the very first question you ever ask them. Imagine being introduced to someone. Hey, this is so-and-so. This is Jeff. He's the new pastor. Are you ready for Jesus to come? Don was a little afraid to ask that question. That was the word that God put in his heart, but that word brought fear and trepidation. He knew there was going to be opposition. What, what kind of question is that? But Don had realized that it's always best to obey what God tells him to do. Have you realized that, friends? And so Don says, I'm going to share this question. So he says, hello, my name is Don, and I have a question for you, Tom. So nice to meet you. Are you ready for Jesus to come? That question took Tom aback and said, oh, he kind of stumbled over some things, and, and that was it. And Don was like, well, that went really well, Lord. Well, you know what, what's going to happen here? And so Don leaves and, and uh, goes back, and, and he doesn't see Tom for, for several months. Well, he found out the next day that his other neighbor uh, and Tom were talking afterwards, and Tom was like, you know, what was Don doing on the road? And the other neighbor said, well, Don prayer walks in the mornings. And Tom said, well, he can use my property if he wants. I have this big property. Here's the gate code to get behind the iron gate and tell Don that he can pray on my property as much as he wants. And Don said, Lord, he's no longer the iron gate neighbor. You got me inside the iron gate. So he starts praying every morning at 6 a.m. on his prayer walk, starts going up, and there's some rocks on his property, goes in, lets himself in, and starts praying. After doing that for a couple of months, he's sitting there on his rock. Don is one day. The early morning mist is kind of surrounding him, and he sees Tom's car come rolling down the driveway. Tom doesn't see him, and the Holy Spirit again tells Don, Don, I want you to go, and I want you to make Tom an offer. Make him an offer. That's what the Holy Spirit put on his heart. So he runs after this car, trying to catch it before the gate, and thankfully, Tom got out of his car because he needed to pick up something, maybe mail or something. He's surprised to see Don there. He hadn't seen Don since that point in time. It's been several months, and even though he had given Don permission, he hadn't ever seen Don on his property. And, you know, he's kind of taken aback, and Don was like, remember you gave me permission? Oh, yeah, that's right, that's right. Don tells Tom, I, I-, I want to make you an offer. And the guy's like, what kind of offer do you want to make me? And Don, as he writes his story, shares that he's in old beat-up clothes. He has his old beat-up shoes and jeans with holes in them and old shirt. And here's this, you know, wealthy individual with a nice car, and he's saying, I want to make you an offer, you know, like a business offer. The, the offer that God put on Don's heart was, Tom, I want to make you an offer. I want to m- meet with you every morning for the next 12 days at 6 a.m. to get ready for Jesus' soon return. That was the offer that he made him. Is that a good offer, friends? Yes. Don tells Tom, I want to make you an offer. I want to wake up with you every morning at 6 a.m. Well, Tom scoffs at that idea. 
Me, wake up at 6 a.m., I, I, I don't work. I can do it during the day. Can we do another time? No, it needs to be at 6 a.m. Well, Tom looks at him and says, you know what, I'll tell you this. If God tells me to do it with you, I'll do it. And so they pray together, and Don is just praying, you know, Lord, please impress upon this man's heart to take up this offer. And right after they were done praying, Tom looked at him in the eye and said, I'll see you tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. And for the next 12 days, they study God's word. They study what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. They study how to be ready for Jesus' soon return. And at the end of that, they said goodbye. And Don thought to himself, Lord, what's going to happen next? Tom kind of said, well, thank you for coming, and that was it. They didn't set up another time. Several months went by. Like a long story short, Tom's wife ended up getting a, a deadly disease. He didn't say what it is in the book, but maybe it was a cancer, something that put her on, on uh, you know, uh, uh, they thought that she was going to pass away. And he asked Don, can you come pray with her in the hospital? He comes and prays with her. And it's an amazing story, but miraculously, God healed Tom's wife. She ended up, uh, uh, somehow the disease ended up going away, and, and uh, Tom and his wife ended up getting baptized uh, into their church and became, became members. But what a powerful story to illustrate what I believe uh, God is telling us through Ezekiel. That there are people that we think to ourselves, they're an iron gate. There's no way that I can ever reach them. There's no way they would ever be interested in coming to a Seventh-day Adventist church and learning about the Bible. There's no way. And maybe, friends, you're thinking about your own life. Perhaps you're thinking, you know what? My heart is so hard, God. It is an iron gate. It is hard like flint. There's no way that God can forgive me. I've made too many mistakes. I've gone down a path that can't be retraced. Lord, how can you love me after all that I've done? And even, friends, to your heart, God is speaking today and says there's no mountain too tall for me to climb. There's no gate too strong for me to get through. God can make your heart soft again, friends. He can. Jesus is in the business of changing lives. He's changed my life. He's changed yours. And if you've come in today thinking, Lord, is there any hope for me? There is, friends. Jesus wants to do something new in your life and in the lives of those around us. And I believe God is asking for us to think of people that may be iron gates, but to reach out to them, to pray for them, to put them on that light card. And I believe that God is going to share the gospel with each one of them as we are faithful to him. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7. We're wrapping up here. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7. As I was studying, Lord, what does it mean to have hearts that are hard like flint? Lord, what does it mean to, that, that you're going to make my forehead as hard as flint against theirs? What does that look like, Lord? And the Lord led me here to this passage in Isaiah chapter 50. Notice verse 7, friends. For the Lord God will help me. Can someone say amen? Love that line. For the Lord God will help me. Therefore, I will not be disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I will not be ashamed. Now, friends, the reason this is powerful is because who is talking here in this passage? Who is talking in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 7? Jesus is talking. This is a messianic prophecy. The reason we know that is several reasons, but, but, but notice, notice verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. Do you want to know what to say to people when you evangelize? I do. How do we do that? Verse 4 tells us. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. Jesus 
will wake you up and tell you what you should say to other people. He will, friends. And notice verse five. The Lord God has opened my ear. I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. And notice verse six. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. This is Jesus, friends. Jesus, as he's speaking of his relationship with his father, Jesus is saying, my father woke me up morning by morning to know what to say to those around me. I gave my back to those who struck me. So isn't it powerful, friends, in verse seven, Jesus is saying, I have set my face like a flint, and I will not be ashamed. What is Jesus talking about? I have set my face like a flint, I will not be ashamed. Turn with me to Luke chapter nine, verse 51. I believe, friends, and after studying this verse and reading some commentators, I believe that Luke had in mind Isaiah chapter 50, verse seven, when Luke chapter nine, verse 51 was written. Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Let's read it again. Now it came to pass when the time had come for Jesus to be received up. The time had come for Jesus to go to the cross. Jesus had fulfilled his earthly ministry and he knew that his time was short. He knew that his time to be received up on the cross was coming. Therefore, what does it say? He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. One Bible commentator said this, in Jerusalem, Jesus would face arrest, torture, and agonizing death. With trust in God the Father to help and defend him before his enemies, Jesus set off firmly and unflinchingly committed to finish his mission. There was no backing out. No enemy or accuser could deter Jesus from accomplishing his purpose. He set his face like a flint. What Isaiah chapter 50 verse seven is saying, friends, is that Jesus set his face like a flint for the cross. Jesus would not let anyone deter him from his mission. Jesus wants to save you so bad, he would not let anything get in the way, friends. Jesus cares about people in Henderson County so much that Jesus set his face like a flint to Jerusalem, and he was not going to let anything deter him from that mission. Isn't that beautiful, friends? That's the gospel. If there was only one soul on planet Earth to share his watch care, as the book Steps to Christ says, if there was only one soul upon the planet to share his watch care, Jesus still would have come. The relations between God and each soul are as distinct and full as if there were not another planet, a soul upon the planet, she says. Wow. God made a difference in the life of one. That, 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 that's all that he wanted to make a difference in, at least one. But he made a difference in so many more. But I'm so thankful, friends, that that gospel message, that Jesus would not deter himself from going to the cross, from dying on Calvary for you and me, that if Jesus can set his face like a flint for his mission, I believe that we can set our faces like flint for our mission. As Christians, as Seventh-day Adventists, we have a message that Jesus is coming soon, friends. And Jesus will give us strength, even though it's difficult, even though it's challenging. He will give us strength to accomplish that mission. Charles Spurgeon is a great preacher in the 1880s in England. I want us to read this entire thing because I read this uh, it spoke to my heart. We serve a master, 
Charles Spurgeon says, who steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem in order that he might accomplish the one great purpose for which he came to earth. And from that, he would not be turned. Therefore, it behooves us to be faithful to him and to partake as far as we can of his spirit. Does he not seem to accuse us without saying a word? For his face was set like a flint, while Jeff Harper's face, while our faces are often made to blush with shame when we're called on to speak up for him, or perhaps when we are ashamed to do so. And I love this line, convicting line. Oh, you fickle Christians, hot in revival service, but lukewarm afterwards. Can someone say mercy? Friends, unfortunately, that is me, that is you. Too often we come to church, we're inspired, we say, yes, Lord, and we walk out of those doors and we cool down like that. And I believe, friends, that experience God doesn't want us to have, to continue that heating up process as we walk out. You who sing, here, Lord, I give myself away, and yet do nothing of the kind. Do we need a hard message every once in a while? Charles Spurgeon has given it to me. Oh, you who say that you love the Lord your God with all your hearts and declare that you're willing to die for him, yet go into the world to put him to an open shame by your inconsistencies. Wow. If we truly follow such a Lord as Christ is, and I love this line, we ought to be flinty-faced for all holy purposes. Can you say amen? I want to be flinty-faced, to be hard as flint. And I ask you, dear friends, to pray to God, the Holy Spirit, to make you so. And please know, friends, that the Holy Spirit is the only one that can make us flinty-faced. Are you resolved, dear friend, that being a Christian, you will spread the Redeemer's kingdom? Then break that cowardly silence which has so long held you in captivity and speak for Christ. How can a dumb tongue glorify him? How can you expect to win others to him if you never speak about him? Is that a good question, friends? That's a good question. So many of us will speak at church, but to no one else about Jesus. If this is a a cross to you, resolve that you will take it up and carry it bravely for Christ. I pray that not one of the members of this church may be barren and unfruitful. Is there one of you who has never brought another soul to Christ? I'm afraid that there are such members among us, yet I'm happy to testify that I've seen many of your faces in the sweetest possible association by that expression. I mean that you've seen, I've seen you bring a friend to me and say, hey, here's a soul, Pastor Spurgeon, I've tried to comfort. I've, I, I hope I've really led them to Christ, and will you, uh, I brought them to you so that they may confess their Savior and unite with the Lord's people in church fellowship. I encourage you, friends, to, to think about that passage, and I believe, friends, that God will give us strength to follow him. I want to close with a, a, another short story, and uh, Don McClafferty was on a long flight home back across the ocean, The hours ticked by slowly for me in my cramped row of seats. And Don starts praying, Lord, who do you want me to encourage on this plane? Who do you want me to pray with? And over the course of the flight, you know, he uh, uh, told me different people that I could pray for. But one of the same flight attendants that I'd been praying for came to my seat and said, one of our colleagues saw you giving a book to one of our colleagues. Can we have one too? So earlier on this flight, Don McClafferty had given out some of the books that he had written to uh, these flight attendants. And uh, one of them had said, I I want one of those uh, books too. So he uh, gives it to him. Uh, Here's where the story starts. The plane started its descent. I went back to my seat as I heard the message over the loudspeaker. We need all passengers to please take their seats. We are beginning our final descent into our destination. God, I prayed again. You're impressing me to ask you one more time, is there someone on this flight you want me to pray with? Just as I prayed that prayer, 
At the exact moment, one of the young male flight attendants walked past my row of seats. He had not been particularly friendly during the whole flight, but he was doing his job in a very professional and efficient way. He seemed to have a lot on his mind. And God spoke to my heart and said, go tell that young man how much I love him and ask him if you can, uh, if, if you can pray with him. But God, I argued, the message has already come over the loudspeaker. We're making our final descent. Everyone has to be buckled. We're supposed to stay in our seats. And just as I was having that conversation with God, another message came over the loudspeaker. Please make sure that all your seats are buckled. We will soon be landing. Stronger, the Holy Spirit spoke again. Don, go and pray with that young man right now. But God, I said, everybody is already in their seats on this whole huge flight. I have to walk past everyone. We're going down. Everyone will stare at me. Now, I noticed that this young flight attendant had gone to the front of the plane and pulled the curtain around his workstation. He was taking the final few minutes to put everything in order, and I shared these observations with God. But God was not impressed with my logic, Don writes. Don, go immediately, the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart. Knowing that I was about to make a spectacle of myself, I got up. And I started walking down the long aisle to go with where this flight attendant was busy doing his final work. People were looking at me. Some of them were motioning me to go sit down. It was embarrassing. And that's why I had been avoiding doing this in the first place. Now let's just pause for a moment, friends. How many of you, would I, would Jeff Harper, be willing to go wherever God tells me to go? Despite the embarrassment, despite what people think, God tells Ezekiel and Jeremiah, don't be afraid of their faces. And he's telling Don, don't be afraid of their faces. And he's telling us, don't be afraid of their faces. Finally, I got past all those people up to where the curtain was drawn, and I gently pulled it aside. The young flight attendant looked up at me with surprise. Sir, you should be sitting down, he told me. Just one more thing, I said, but he interrupted me frimly. Sir, it's time to sit down. I took a deep breath, gathered my courage, and looked him in the face as I declared. I just want to tell you that God loves you so much, more than you know, and I'm impressed by God to ask you, can I pray with you? Wow. And notice this, friends. The young flight attendant's face went white, and he stepped back, and he was in shock. And he said, oh my, this is amazing. I was just telling God in my head, God, if there really is a God out there, would you please do something to show me that you care? I was just talking to God and asking him to show me that he was really there. I've been so discouraged with God. I've given up that he even cares that he exists. I'm not happy with my life and where I'm going. And just moments ago, I was pleading with God, if you're there, show me something. Show me something that lets me know you see me and that you hear my cry. And just now you come in to tell me that God loves me. And you come in and said, may I pray for you. He paused as he fought to keep his emotions in control. Yes, you may pray for me. And so I prayed, I really prayed, and the young man had tears in his eyes when I finished. God really did hear me, he said to himself. Now you need to go back to your seat, he said. I walked back to my seat, past rows of people staring at me, some with puzzled expressions, and many with solid disapproval. But what all they thought didn't matter to me anymore. I sat down and put my seat belt back on, and a few minutes later the plane landed, 
And I closed my eyes and grinned and said, God, thank you. You are the God of every moment. Every moment matters. There are people this week that God is impressing upon your heart to call and to say, hey, I'm praying for you. I'm thinking about you. And I believe, friends, that God desires to give us more courage than we have. Too many of us, including myself, are not bold enough in sharing the gospel. And I believe the message that God has for us today is to be strong, to have heads, foreheads like flint, to go where God will tell us to go, and he will give us strength to share his message. So if you are willing to stand up, to stand up for Jesus, I invite you to stand with me to your feet. If you're willing to stand up for Jesus, stand up.